0: Chapter Thirteen of *The New Adventures of Alice*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. *The New Adventures of Alice* by John Ray. Chapter Thirteen. King Cole's Court. Alice raced down the little path, pausing to look neither to right nor left she came to an opening in the hedge of giant sunshades. Here she stopped short, a curiously picturesque, lively scene, brilliant in color, met her eyes. Before her lay a vivid green tennis lawn, upon which quite a number of gaily dressed mother-goose people and animals, each carrying a Japanese fan and an orange, were moving about with a great deal of merry chatter, some of the party Alice had seen before, but many were entirely new to her, among the latter was a gigantic woman at least ten feet tall, with hands which were immense, even for one of her size. She wore a crinoline-skirted dress of brilliant yellow. "'That must be the candlestick maker's wife, Pansy,' Alice began saying to herself. "'And that pig with wings "'and the funny old bonnet is?' Her observations were at this point interrupted, however, by a great, booming voice calling out, "'Play!' then began what proved to be a most confusing and noisy game of tennis. In the first place, almost everyone present, and there were a score or more, took part. The only ones not actually playing were some dwarfish, woodeny soldiers, about three feet in height, all armed with bellows, who stood in a row across the court in place of a net, and four or five court attendants, cats, who busied themselves by continually shifting the white ribbon boundary lines of the tennis court about during the game in place of balls and rackets that strange players used the oranges and fans they had been carrying and their frenzied beating about with the large fans raised a breeze which soon grew to be quite a gale sitting on a very gaudy throne near the far side of the court alice had noticed an immensely fat jolly-looking man dressed in bright scarlet with a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand king cole without a doubt the king acted as umpire at first, bawling out rules, decisions, and scores, in a voice choking with merriment. But as this ridiculous game proceeded, he became more and more hilariously excited, and finally leaped from his throne and joined the boisterous contestants using his scepter as a racket. The game now became more confused and noisy than ever. King Cole, in spite of his great girth, proved to be as lively as a cricket. He bounced about here, there, and everywhere whacking at the flying oranges with loud whoops of joy, and turning a handspring now and then out of pure exuberance. His contagious enthusiasm caused the others to redouble their exertions, and they tore about the court, tripping over the moving boundary tapes and shouting with laughter at the clumsy efforts of some of their number to imitate the acrobatic agility of the king. The ludicrous attempts of one extremely bandy-legged man to turn a cartwheel caused Alice to almost go into hysterics. Though most of the fans were broken by this time, neither side seemed to have the advantage. Players had begun throwing the oranges about at each other, and this kept Alice constantly dodging, as she was now standing very near the court in order to watch the game better. When the uproarious excitement was at its height, King Cole, who had just had his crown knocked awry by a collision with the giantess Pansy, suddenly held up his hand to command order and silence, and, when he could get his breath, shouted in a voice that might easily have been heard a mile away, REFRESHMENTS! At this there was a loud outburst of cheering and hand-clapping and cries of LONG LIVE KING COLE! in every key, after which most of the tennis players started immediately and noisily to suck the oranges with which they had been playing. KING COLE now turned and started to walk back to the throne, shouting over his shoulder as he went, WE DECLARE THE GAME A TIE! adding in an aside to a large gray goose who was standing near him our games are always ties everybody happy then and no unpleasantness i suppose thought alice now that the game is over the king will notice me and perhaps i'll be put out it had suddenly occurred to her that she had not been invited to this tennis party and furthermore that the snail doorman despite his slowness might be expected back almost any time now with the report of her breaking of the umbrella rule she felt rather relieved therefore when king paul catching sight of her standing near the throne showed no surprise but smiled beamingly upon her and beckoned for her to approach just what we need my dear and just what we need he exclaimed joyfully rubbing his hands together and taking the bowl and pipe which alice had almost forgotten she was holding he settled himself upon the throne with a deep sigh of happiness then motioning alice to a place near him on the edge of the little circular dais upon which the throne stood king cole cried jovially everybody be seated alice saw with surprise that the soldiers alone disregarded this royal command and remained standing stolidly in line as before and she felt that here was a good opportunity to begin a conversation a friendly chat with a king who'd be something she could boast about a little afterward so she asked in her very politest manner please your majesty why don't the soldiers sit down like the rest the king had taken off a long piece of the pipe stem and through this he was contentedly sucking up the contents of the bowl. Upon hearing Alice's question, he removed the pipe stem from his lips to say with a chuckle, Oh, it's all right about them, my dear. You see, that's our standing army. And naturally, a standing army can't sit down. Most of the guests must have been familiar with this little joke of King Cole's, for many of them had started to laugh extravagantly as soon as Alice asked her question. This seemed to encourage the king, We waited until the applause had ceased, and then continued, complacently, We suppose you've noticed, my dear, that our soldiers are all armed with bellows. A rather clever idea of our own that. Perhaps you can guess the reason, eh? Then, without warning, more than a second or two for an answer from poor Alice, who was beginning to feel uncomfortably conspicuous and extremely stupid. The king said triumphantly, It's so that without the expense of the ammunition they can always return blow for blow. At this the soldiers all suddenly raised their pairs of bellows, and squeezed them in perfect unison with the most surprising result. All of the parties sitting in front of the army on the tennis lawn, with the exception of the ponderous pansy, were rolled over and over by the blast, and there was a great deal of squealing and laughter and good-natured scrambling about to recover lost hats and oranges. King Cole fairly rocked with his enjoyment of this lively scene. In the midst of all this uproar, alice noticed coming through a nearby opening in the sunshade hedge a roly-poly little old lady wearing a crown like the king's and a very soiled robe of light lavender velvet trimmed with ermine behind her walked the cook of the somersault sally carrying a plate piled high with slices of bread and a tremendous jar labelled honey they had almost reached the throne by the time the king who had caught sight of them when they first appeared managed to control his mirth and shout to the boisterous guests on the lawn silence the queen we don't mean by that that she needs silencing you understand he whispered loudly turning to alice with a jolly wink (laughs) that is not just now perhaps though she is something of a talker my dear the queen who had evidently overheard this last remark seemed to take it as a great compliment she hastily swallowed all she possibly could of a large bite she had just taken from a slice of bread and honey which the cook had handed to her a moment before and said coyly with her mouth still half full you see my child he's a great flatterer oh yes indeed a most atrocious flatterer but there is truth in what he just said about my being a wonderful talker not so stingy with that honey my good fellow this to the cook why once in my younger days i remember talking from seven in the morning till ten in the evening to an admirer of mine (laughs) deaf he was and never even here the queen took another prodigious bite of bread and honey and though she kept right on talking her mouth was so full that, for a time, one could only catch almost unintelligible word now and then. Alice soon gathered from gestures, however, that the queen had changed the subject, and was now expressing extravagant admiration for the ridiculous ragged old quilt which Alice still wore. I really don't need the quilt any longer, now that it has grown so much warmer, thought Alice. And besides, Her Majesty really does need a large napkin of some sort. So she removed the gaudy covering and was quite surprised to hear herself saying, I beg of you to accept this trifling gift which your majesty admires as yours. She vaguely remembered having read those words somewhere, but they seemed to fit the situation perfectly. The queen seemed quite overcome with astonished gratitude, for her jaws even stopped working, and she stared at the quilt as though doubtful whether the offer of so rich a gift were meant seriously. Then suddenly, regardless of the bread and honey, with which both her hands and her mouth were now full, she threw her short arms about alice and kissed her heartily on both cheeks that's a great honour for you my dear child a great honour chuckled the king then with another of his elaborate winks added i suppose you'll be very much stuck up for a while then finishing his refreshment with a loud smacking of lips and a tremendous sigh of satisfaction the rotund monarch hurled the empty bowl over the hedge and then placing his four fingers against his teeth he whistled ear splittingly just the way our baker's boy does it thought alice the king's whistle was apparently a signal. For immediately the cat attendants appeared at the entrance to the court, dragging a small wheeled platform upon which stood a huge, gaily painted bandbox, at least six feet in diameter. The attendants stopped in front of the throne, and the crowd of guests threw away their oranges and formed an expectant semicircular group behind the platform. Now exclaimed the king, rubbing his hands in joyful anticipation, "We'll have some music." His Majesty dotes on good music, the queen remarked to Alice though it usually puts him to sleep that is when the band plays loud enough and this one always does except but where are the musicians alice interrupted puzzled i'm sure i don't see any band why the band's in the band box silly chuckled king cole who had overheard her query. where a band should be now if you'll listen Just then there was a sort of musical explosion as Alice expressed it afterward, and the cover of the bandbox flew off and went skimming over the hedge. Standing in the box, with only their heads and shoulders visible, were the famous Fiddlers Three, and the Piper and his son Tom, and seated on the Piper's shoulder was none other than Alice's old friend, the Candlestick Maker, with his drum. Each one of these zealous musicians seemed to be trying desperately to drown out the other five, and the Candlestick Maker, having the noisiest instrument, almost succeeding in doing this. Alice soon recognized the tune, though they were playing it at about twice its usual speed, as Over the Hills and Far Away. In response to the enthusiastic applause of the audience, the band kept repeating this one air over and over in a very monotonous fashion, the only variation being that at each repetition they went a little faster. I suppose, thought Alice, the reason is that it's the only tune the Piper son can play, and probably King Cole doesn't mind anyhow. As long as they make plenty of noise why he's nodding already she added i'm sure i never saw so many sleepy heads as there are in this country and sure enough as the queen had predicted the king after a minute or two of the noisy music was sleeping quite peacefully upon the crowd of guests however it had a very different effect for they all began a very lively and curious kind of square dance principal figure in which was like a combination of the games of ring around a rosy, and snap the whip. When the band, apparently exhausted by its efforts, finally stopped playing, the Queen, who was always either eating or talking, hastily gulped on the last of the supply of bread and honey, and turned to Alice. While the musicians are resting between selections, she said pleasantly, we usually play games, and as you, my dear, here she unexpectedly kissed the poor child again heartily, are the guest of honor to-day, we shall leave the choice of the first game to you. Although, she rattled on, I should strongly suggest Stagecoach. That's a delightful game, my dear, and a great favorite of mine. Such a lot of talking in it, too, you know. If you just as soon, ventured Alice, I'd like to start. She was about to say that she would like to start with a game of blind man's buff. Just imagine what fun it would be played by this crowd, she had thought. The talkative queen, however, did not wait for the little girl to finish the sentence, but exclaimed enthusiastically, you'd like to start right now of course my dear well so we can and so we shall then motioning the crowd to be seated on a number of little blue three-legged stools which the attendants had just brought in and placed near the throne she announced this young lady has especially requested that we now play stagecoach which happens to be a game of which i too am particularly fond as some of the younger readers of this tale may never have played the amusing old-fashioned game of stagecoach let me explain it in a few words Before the game begins, the parts are given out. That is, each player is given the name of one of the characters in a story of an adventurous stagecoach trip, excepting the leader, the one who recites or reads the story. The players are all seated. Whenever during the recitation of the adventures, any one of the characters is mentioned. The player having that part rises from his seat, turns around twice, and sits down again. The failure to do this calling for a forfeit. Whenever the word stagecoach is heard, all rise and change seats the leader trying it in a general scramble to obtain a seat for himself. If the leader succeeds in this, the player left standing must go on with the story. Alice took a seat among the others on one of the little stools, and the queen gave out the parts. Her haphazard distribution of these causing a great deal of merriment. To the gigantic pansy, for example, she gave the part of the little dog, a traditional stage coach character, and to Jack Spratt, that of Ponderous Captain Swordfish, while Alice herself was old Auntie Crusader and many of the others had parts equally inappropriate when all were ready the queen started to read very rapidly from a dog-eared little book which she had taken from a pocket in her skirt and the game began alice happened to be sitting between the tremendous pansy and the old man of bombay this proved to be rather an unfortunate thing for her as the old man growing very much excited as the game progressed puffed harder and harder on his pipe, filling the air with such a dense cloud of curling smoke that the little girl could only now and then catch a glimpse of the queen and the other players. The giantess occupied not only her own stool, but about two-thirds of Alice's most of the time, and this kept the child terribly worried, for in the course of the story, the little dog was mentioned more often than any of the other characters, and Pansy was therefore continually having to get up turn and sit down again. "'And it's almost certain that sooner or later she'll sit right down on top of poor little me,' said Alice to herself. "'And if she ever does—' But just then the story reached the point where Captain Swordfish said, "'Where is the big cheese we brought along for our lunch?' "'I'm afraid,' answered the footman, "'that the little dog has eaten it, sir.' The giantess, who was doubtless growing rather angry at having to get up so oftener than the others, reseated herself this time with a petulant flounce and the little stool gave way beneath her weight at the same instant as if to make the occurrence more dramatic. The music began again with a long, rolling rub-a-dub-a-dub-a-dub from the drum, and the old man of Bombay blew such a blinding cloud of smoke from his pipe that for a few moments Alice could see nothing. End of chapter 13 Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida